One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, welcome to Hollywood Crime Scene. This is Rachel Fisher. Hi, this is Desi Jenikin. All right, let's start out the show by thanking our lovely Patreon contributors this week. Uh, they donated over at patreon.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. This week we had Moonbeam, Cassandra, Melissa, Fiona, Marion, Deidre, Chloe, Tanya, Evie, Kathy, Shay, Tori, Bethany, Mackenzie, Gagey, Razel, Angelique, Danielle, Kieran, Uke, Megan, Queenie, Kate, Allison, Cherry, Cece, and Janae. Thanks, guys. Do you remember the dog Queenie in Crooklyn? Oh, yeah. That scene was so funny. <laughs> That's a good movie. Underrated movie, in my opinion. That's actually my favorite Spike Lee movie. It's so good. I just feel like it never gets talked about enough. Don't you think? I agree. Yeah. The it's soundtrack's really great, too. Excellent. Okay. Totally different topic. Yeah. Today's... <laughs> no segue here. No segue here. Today's so, show... Yeah. Are you going to say it? No. I'm, <laughs> I was just going to say I'm very excited. Oh, good. Well, I think a lot of people are going to be excited because this has been a highly requested topic for us since we started, probably. Don't you think? I feel like this one's always like, do this. Um, and that is a um, deep dive into the completely bizarre life and crimes of Ed Gein. Now, Ed has served as the inspiration for numerous books and films. The tale first came to public attention in the fictionalized version presented in the suspense novel Psycho, written by Robert Block in 1959, which, as we know, um, was the basis for Alfred Hitchcock's 1960 film uh, Psycho, which is... A classic. Do you like that movie? Of course. Who doesn't? Like <laughs> it's so Psycho? good. It's like I think that's my favorite Alfred Hitchcock movie. Like, really? Yeah. Do you have another one? <laughs> Vertigo. Oh, you like Vertigo? Vertigo is my favorite. I've noticed some Vertigo uh, hate lately. What? Yeah. I From don't. Who? I actually was. I noticed it on my Twitter timeline like a lot in the past few weeks, and I was like, did that movie like get released on? Uh, some you know streaming service or something like why is everyone all of a sudden hating on Vertigo? You know what it might be is because Vertigo is so popular and acclaimed, people probably want to have the edgy take like, uh, actually, it's not that great. Yeah, and I feel like uh, I haven't seen it in a very long time, but I remember liking it fine. Like <laughs> when Here, I did see it a long time here's ago. Why I like Vertigo? I mean, two of the uh, big reasons I like Vertigo it takes place. In San Francisco, yes, in the Bay Area, and I grew up there. And uh, the clothes, yes, it's a it has a great look, and I also love the poster. Oh like, yeah, yeah, the posters are just classic, and I just love Jimmy Stewart. Yeah, I'm not quite sure what people's complaints are, uh, and I didn't look into it, but it was something I noticed the past few weeks that I was thought was uh, interesting. Anyways, I like Psycho a lot. Now, in addition to Psycho, this story was uh, loosely adapted into a bunch of films. There's a movie called Deranged that came out in 1974, In the Light of the Moon, another movie that came out in 2000. There's a 
a movie that's actually based on him called Ed Gein, The Butcher of Plainfield that came out in 2007. Uh, Rob Zombie films, I haven't seen these, House of a Thousand Corpses, and its sequel, I guess, had some character or element based on him, uh, as, as well as... The Devil's Rejects, that's the sequel to House of a Thousand Corpses. Did you Do you remember an Ed Gein-like character? I mean, there's like definitely some gross things happening that could right. be... Gein like uh, Leatherface and Texas Chainsaw Massacre is sort of loosely based on Gein. I would say more inspired by his crimes. Are they loosely based this Leatherface on him? Well, I'm just reading what I did research on. <laughs> I'm not, it's not my opinion. I mean, it's pretty commonly said that that elements of that guy, I guess, maybe cutting up the face out of the pieces and putting it on his head, right? Yeah, the story's not inspired by no, but like elements, elements like of Buffalo Bill is also sort of based on some Gein like absolutely uh, things. And then there was a character on Doctor, uh, I'm sorry, on American Horror Story Asylum called Doctor Oliver Threadson, like that. I guess was also. I think a lot of these are like amalgamations of a few different people. Usually, I would say that Ed Gein is one of those serial killers that has been used as inspiration for like, I mean, just countless different fictional characters. Yeah. Because it's a one of a kind story. Uh, and the fact that it happened in the (laughs) fifties, like basically, I feel like it's just seems like even crazier that it, that it's like from the old, like not like a more modern thing. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, uh, for me anyway, it seems like crazy that it happened sort of in that decade. Um, now, I think we talked about this on one episode. I can't remember which one it was, but Errol Morris and um, Werner Herzog at some point had attempted to collaborate on a project about him. Actually, it was in 1975 to 1976. Morris interviewed Gaines several times and ended up spending almost a year in Plainfield interviewing local residents. The pair um, planned to exhume his mother from her grave to test a theory that they had, but they never (laughs) followed through on that scheme. Hasn't that mother been through enough? (laughs) You know what? I don't have that much sympathy for her. (laughs) (laughs) I just mean her body, her uh, corpse. I should have said, hasn't that corpse been through enough? Um, Eventually, this collaboration ended. I don't know the reason why, but I'm pretty bummed about it because I feel like that would have been an amazing project to see. There is actually a a 1989 New Yorker article about Morris where they describe this more in detail if you want to look that up. Another famous um, media reference to um, Ed Gein is actually a misquote. In the movie American Psycho, Patrick Bateman quotes Ed Gein, but it's actually an Edmund Kemper quote. Uh, The quote is, you know what Ed Gein said about women? He said, when I see a pretty girl walking down the street, I think two things. One part of me wants to take her out, talk to her, be real nice and sweet and treat her right. The other part wonders what her head would look like on a stick. Now, as we all know, if if you have any knowledge of Ed Gein, this is not a person who wanted to fuck women (laughs) like in a real way. Edmund Kemper definitely uh, was was that sick fuck. Edmund Kemper was a real incel. Dude. I hope we can do something on him at some point because he is fucking unbelievable. Like as far as a monster goes, oh. just like one of the, did, what was the, what's the show on Netflix? I can't remember. Mindhunter. The Fincher one. Yeah. Mindhunter. Yeah. There's some good scenes with him in that. 
that the I guy thought, who plays him is amazing. That was what I thought was so frightening because it was because so, there's a lot of video of Ed Kemper being interviewed. So if you've seen that, you realize what a great performance it is. I mean, he is just spot on. Now, another interesting thing about Ed Gein is he spawned a subgenre of black humor called Gainers. Gainers. <laughs> yes. Now, these are kind of an early version of truly tasteless jokes. Here's a few Gainers. Why did they have to keep the heat on in Ed Gein's house so the furniture wouldn't get goosebumps? Another one was old Ed was a good guy to know when you were looking to advance your career. He could really help you get ahead. So these were like dark jokes that people told immediately in the aftermath of this case, like breaking wide and people finding out who Ed Gein was. (laughs) Like this kind of like, I don't even know what it is. Like They're real groaners. They're real groaners, but they were the edgy jokes, I guess, of the day to do kind of things like that. I actually, there was a whole message board of these Gainer jokes that was just, someone had written a whole like, twas the night before Christmas and changed it all to like Ed Gein references. Like it was a whole like genre of comedy for a brief period. What a, what a world. Now, the book I used as a source for this episode is called Deviant, The True Story of Ed Gein by Harold Schechter, oh. which is considered to be the best, most detailed book about this case. He's a very prolific, prolific yeah, he's a author. Well-known true crime, crime. true crime writer. Anyway, so let's get into it. This all takes place in Wisconsin, which has gotten some true crime action lately with making making a murderer. Uh, we've kind of seen this side of Wisconsin. I think in that documentary, we kind of got a glimpse of this more desolate areas. Rural. Of, yeah, really rural and not like what we usually think of. I think when you think of Wisconsin, you're like, oh, lush green dairy farms, cheese, like this kind of thing. But there's actually like quite a few areas that were hit hard by like depressions or recessions. And they're just kind of like old rundown farms, um, especially in the early half of the 1900s. Now, a lot of these farms were revived when more modern farming technology technology came around. But the area where our story takes place was really hard hit by these recessions and they were just like abandoned farmhouses with rusted farm equipment everywhere. Like you can kind of get the image. The grass was very dry and straw colored. Some uh, people in Wisconsin call this area sand country. Others refer to it as Wisconsin's great dead heart. Uh, Now, (laughs) that's not something the local tourism board uses, I'm guessing. This area includes La Crosse, Wisconsin, which was where Gein was born, and Plainfield, where the majority of his life was spent. Now, Plainfield is a very small town that is described as being full of pride with hardworking farmer type people, but it also has known its share of death and destruction through things like natural events, sort of like cyclones and blizzards, as well as a horrific lynch mob incident that took place in 1853. But nothing would put Plainfield more on the map in a really fucking bad way than Ed Gein and what he did there in the middle of last century. Now I'm going to get into some backstory now. The book I read opened this section of the book with a quote from Silvano Arletto and his book Interpretations of Schizophrenia. 
I don't know how accurate this still stands, but it seems pretty relevant to Ed's story. The quote was, although it is the mother who contributes mostly in producing conditions which we are going to describe, we usually find in the history of schizophrenics that both parents have failed the child, often for different reasons. Frequently, the combination is as followed, a domineering, nagging, and hostile mother who gives the child no chance to assert themselves, is married to a dependent, weak man, too weak to help the child, a father who dares not protect the child because he is not able to oppose her strong personality. It's just as crippling to the child as the mother is. And this is very spot on to the situation that Ed Gein grew up in. So George Gein, Ed's father, was orphaned at the age of three when his entire family went on an errand in a wagon and were drowned in a flash flood. So it was his mom, his dad, and one of his, or his only sibling. They literally just got caught. Uh, aren't flash floods fucking scary as hell? Yeah, <laughs> like, of course. I, I'm, I'm always frightened by that because it seems like something you can survive, but people obviously uh, don't. Uh, so yeah, he's orphaned at the age of three. He goes to live with his grandparents after that and leaves a pretty like uneventful early life. The book really describes him as an in- insignificant like person outside of the fact that he raised this monster. He's, he doesn't get a good um, treatment in this book at all. <laughs> he's pretty much a loser. <laughs> like there's never anything sort of redeemable about him at all. Um, so when he becomes an adult, he moves around from job to job. He has trouble keeping a job. He eventually becomes a hardcore drinker, and he's very successful at that. Now, he's very uh, fucked up in many ways because of this early childhood trauma. Even though he was young when it happened, it's definitely something that haunted and colored his life forever. He starts drinking, and like when he gets drunk, he really goes through these like roller coaster of emotions. He goes between feeling self-pity, aggrieved about his early life tragedy, how things aren't working out for him. And then he also gets rage. Like he blames himself. He's like, hey, I could, I'm never going to amount to anything. I'm a hopeless failure. Like I could have done something. Like so he goes back and forth between these like two qualities, which is seems like a really bad combination with an alcohol problem. And then he puts on Sister Christian. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, he's just in a bad place, and alcohol is certainly not making anything better and probably exasperates all of his worst insecurities. When he's 24, he meets a 19-year-old woman named Augusta. Now, Augusta comes from almost the opposite situation. She is from a rigid, strict family, a large family that emigrated from Germany in 1870. She is described in the book as being thick set and buxom, and she is fanatically religious. She is someone who, to me, seems like they were never young. Like when you see a picture of them at 19, they look already kind of like Queen Victoria. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? Like just that like look where it's like, that's a 19 year old. <laughs> Uh, (laughs) she's uh yeah so she was brought up to adhere to a code of conduct which was enforced by her father with regular beatings augusta was also always outraged by flagrant immorality and the loosest looseness of women she was 100 sure she was right about everything she was domineering self-righteous by all accounts just a a beast of a woman (laughs) a beast beast. yeah she's not a good woman now Her life motto was extreme work, unwavering thrift, and extreme self-denial. Real life of the party type woman here. 
George was in love, though, or at least attracted to her large, cold, weird family. And maybe he liked that Augusta kind of pushed him because he definitely needed something like that. Uh, even he though, needed structure. <laughs> he needed a little structure. Even though I think her pushing him was less like, I believe in you, and more like, I'm not going to be with a loser kind of thing. Like, it definitely wasn't from a place of, like, love. <laughs> Augusta felt superior to everyone. I genuinely... I don't know what he really saw in her, but I guess those are the days you just kind of pick a spouse for whatever reason. Look, people just had to get married back then. Right. Now, Augusta was attracted to his straight-laced and reserved demeanor. Uh, she found that very appealing. He was also a practicing Lutheran like she was, although not as uh, you know fanatical. And he was tall. He, she, she really liked that he was tall. But what she didn't know was that he was um, a budding alcoholic, if not full-blown. Full he was at least keeping it quiet. And he had all of this deep-seated pain and trauma that he was just not dealing with and was waiting to come out. Now, this was a match made in hell. A weak man and a woman who had no problem emasculating him. Obviously, this is a situation that's going to explode at some point. They married on December 4th, 1899, and Augusta quickly took on the role of domestic tyrant. She began belittling George and often called him a lazy dog. That was like her insult for him. Once she found out he was spending his meager income at bars after work, she fucking blew the roof off and um, her disappointment in him went to full on contempt. George reacted by withdrawing, like he would just not speak for days. They would like live in this house in an icy silence, but the icy silence was preferable to what was about to come. One night he returned from a bar outing and Augusta just fucking laid into him. He gives her like what was described as an open-handed wallop. So I just picture him drunkenly swinging at her as she yelled at him. This became like a regular part of their routine at this point. After uh, he would flail at her, she would immediately drop to her knees and pray for his death. Wow. In front of her? Yeah. Pray for the death of her husband. This doesn't sound (laughs) like a healthy situation. Well, I mean, what would you do in this situation? Get divorced, maybe? (laughs) That's not an option for Augusta. She decides that what the, the solution is, is to have a child. Now, she thought that the child might help their marriage, but she also was like... and. At the very least, I'll have an ally in this in this relationship. Only one problem. Augusta loathed sex, Rachel. Whoa. She did not like sex. She obviously thought premarital sex was vile and sinful, but within a marriage, she also thought it was vile, but maybe not sinful. <laughs> she just like was not a fan. Now, there is a quote from her where she said, if we were meant to have sex, Meant to enjoy sex. I'm sorry, if we were meant to have sex, the Lord would have made it enjoyable. Well, Augusta, that's really <laughs> telling on your husband. I was thinking this reminds me of the guys on Twitter who tweet things like <laughs> about like the female orgasm being a myth or like you know what I mean? And, and, they're, and, they're and it's married. like and they're it's like telling on them. It's like, uh <laughs> thanks, Pastor Dan. <laughs> it's just kind of an insane thing. Uh so yeah, she she was repulsed by sex and she literally was like, this is a necessarily, I'm sorry, a necessary evil in order to procreate. That's like it. You have sex to have a baby. God wouldn't have made it felt feel good. Well, it didn't feel good to Augusta. <laughs> God wouldn't have made lesbian sex feel good either. Don't even get Augusta started on that, Rachel. <laughs> Now, 
her hatred of sex was like pathological. It was all she thought of. Like she couldn't even go into town. If she saw a woman smile, she was like, that's proof they're a harlot. Um, but she wanted a child, so she let her husband put one in her. She like let him crawl into the bed white night bed one night and inseminate her. Now, I couldn't help but think when I was reading about Augusta that she would have thought we were total whores. <laughs> and I was like, yes. <laughs> she would have hated us. Imagine Augusta reading our Twitter. <laughs> she would have absolutely left she would have, left us a one-star review. <laughs> she she would have criticized our language for sure. Nine months later, on January 17th, 1902, their first son, Henry, was born. George still couldn't keep a job, so Augusta told him to go into business for himself. He opened up a grocery and meat store, but he was still a loser. She had to take over the business as well from her pathetic fucking husband. Now, she made a lot of fuss about having to do the domestic job as well as the business. But what is she going to do? Cause George just loafed around the house all day. She had no choice. She actually like took over the books when she took over the business. Originally George's name was as owner. She switched that and she put her name as owner and George was listed as a, cr- a clerk. <laughs> oh, are you sure it wasn't cuck? Yeah. She is brutal. Like, George is being massively cucked right now. Absolutely. Now, Augusta did not get the pleasure she sought as a mother. She did not feel connected to her child, Henry, which she blamed on him being a boy. She was sure if she had a girl, things would be different. So she let George put another one in her. And on August 27th, 1906, she gave birth to Edward Theodore. Augusta was furious when she heard she was having another boy. Like, I can't even imagine that she would have just said it right at that moment. What? (laughs) Can you imagine if you gave birth to Ed Gein? That is so funny. Imagine him coming out of your vagina. He probably liked it. He probably remembers it. That was like his first Freudian memory. (laughs) She held her newborn son that night. I mean, probably because he really liked fucking dead things. And that pussy was ice cold. That pussy was as dead as you can get while being living. (laughs) (laughs) She held her newborn son that night and made a vow that he would not be like other men. Sweating and foul mouthed, who only lusted after defiling a woman's body. He would be different. And she would see to that. (laughs) This is like a real monkey's paw situation. (laughs) Look, Augusta got what she had hoped for that day of his blessed birth. Let's just say that. Now, later in life, Ed would recall his mother being nothing but pure goodness. He would talk about his mother later in life, literally with tears streaming down his eyes whenever he spoke of her. That is how fucking in love with his mom he was. Some of his early memories that are included in this book include the time that she gave him some coins to go into town to buy something. He somehow lost them on the way because he's like a child. When he returned, he was already crying that he had disappointed her, and she immediately uh, scrolled. I'm sorry, scrolled him to him. <laughs> scolded. <laughs> hey, who knows in this family? <laughs> you never been scrolled him before, Rachel. Wouldn't it be funny if I just made up a lie to to cover for my mistake? <laughs> She said to him, you're a dreadful child. Only a mother could love you. So these are sort of these moments he recalls uh, as being sort of very uh, formative to him. Uh, He spoke of seeing her working the store, like managing everything and 
like imposing her will on everyone who came in, very in control, and watching his father weakly skulking about with a broom. His earliest memory was being a toddler at the top of the stairs. He described it as losing his balance, but feeling like he was either being pushed or pulled. Just as the terror crept in that he was about to fall down the stairs, he felt the firm grip of his mother's hand around his arm, pulling him back to safety. Of course, she fucking yelled at him, even though he's a toddler at the top of the stairs. <laughs> Seems more on her, in yeah. my opinion. Uh, he considered her a god from that moment on, and he claimed that he felt like she was the only one who could save him from the world's dangers. Now, another formative memory of Ed that Ed had was being at the grocery store, watching the animals come in and being led to a room he was forbidden to enter. This obviously made it enormously captivating to him. And one day when his parents weren't around, he went through the back door of the grocery, stepped into this place and the door opened a crack so he could peek inside. Um, There hanging upside down, I'm reading this from the book now, there hanging upside down from a chain in the ceiling was a slaughtered hog. His father stood on one side of the animal, holding it steady while his mother slipped a long bladed knife down the length of its belly, pulled open the flaps, reached inside and began to work at the glistening ropes of the bowels, which slid out of the carcass onto like a metal tub at her feet. Both his parents had on long leather aprons splattered with blood. He must have made some sort of noise because his mother turned completely around and looked at him. Now, for the rest of his life, he remembered this moment like vividly. It was very like formative. And if you know his crimes, it makes a lot of sense uh, that it would have been. When telling this story later in life, he would say his mother was like no one else in the world. And then he would burst into tears. If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes, but let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. With Rocket Money, I can see all of my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, I can cancel it with a tap. I never have to get on the phone with customer service. They'll even try to get you a refund for the last couple of months of wasted money and negotiate to lower your bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is take a picture of your bill, and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. 
Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. It's definitely saved me money and now I can use that money to waste on things I do want. So stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. That's rocketmoney.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I've had a really stressful year with work and family stuff, and I know I'm not alone when I say I tend to push that stress down in order to get what I need done, done, and that only makes things worse. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. In the past, therapy has helped me navigate many situations from helping me to set boundaries to just becoming the best version of myself. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. I love that it's entirely online, so it's convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash HCS today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash HCS. Now, after making money with their store, Augusta decided the family would move to Plainfield and buy a farm. Partially, that was to get out of the bigger city of La Crosse, which Augusta believed was quickly becoming a modern-day Sodom. Now, this is a time when property was always in the man's name, but not with Augusta. She bought this farm and put her name on the deed and not George's. Augusta quickly found Plainfield to have a very low moral standard as well, though. Luckily, she thought they were isolated on the farm, and she could be in charge of giving her boys a thorough education in morality herself. She preached to her boys about the innate immorality immorality of the world, the evil of drinking, and her belief that all women, except herself, were naturally promiscuous and instruments of the devil. She would read to them every afternoon um, from the Bible and always selected verses concerning death, murder, and divine retribution. At this point, Ed did start attending school, and he would continue going to school until the age of 16 when he graduated in the eighth grade. I have no idea. How does that work? (laughs) I I honestly like looked into that and it's in several different places. I'm guessing he just left at the end of junior high when he was 16. And but that seems old, right? That's very old. So yeah, I don't think he had like a great education, but he wasn't like a bad student and he did love reading. So he was described as his by his classmates as being shy. Teachers remembered him as having strange behavior. He especially with like laughing, that was something like people always brought up as a strange thing that he did. He would sort of laugh out of nowhere, like as if he had his own jokes going in his head. Like the Joker. Yeah, kind of. Uh, He also was very dark. Like he would say things that made people very uncomfortable that he clearly thought was funny. And he would also nervously laugh when people were talking about gruesome things like, hey, that guy got killed deer hunting this weekend and he would nervously laugh. (laughs) Honestly, same. (laughs) So he also did things like he would sort of obviously imitate other kids' normal behaviors. And we know how that's going to go. Not very well. He's going to look creepy as fuck. 
He also was described as always having a disturbing, shit-eating grin. So I think he was just one of those people where you're like, what the fuck is that guy doing or thinking? But he's always... I, I was kind of like, you know, when you were like high and you were trying to be normal... <laughs> and you then I once like caught myself in a mirror where I thought I was very normal and I was like smiling like really creepily <laughs> and I was like oh shit like I'm really high like and everyone knows I'm not fooling anybody so that was kind of Ed Gein every day but evil now at times he would make connections with other students but then he would mistakenly tell his mother about it after school and uh, she would have a litany of reasons why this was bad their mother was a whore their dad had a bad reputation there's a secret scandal in their family there were like a million reasons why he couldn't be friends with that person and he would basically drop them the next day at school like he'd avoid them so he wouldn't have this friend that would make his mom fucking pissed another thing everything everyone noticed about him um, was that he had traits typically thought of at the time as girlish so they would always point out uh, these things about him now a lot of them are definitely like sexist and probably wouldn't be a big deal today uh, the one thing people noticed though is that he really would cry at the drop of a hat like he was super um, sensitive yeah uh, so he would often cry um, the kids did pick on him because of his weird behavior but he also had a um, growth on his eyelid that was I guess like a mole that was so big it would make that eyelid droop a bit and kids definitely uh, picked on him okay Eddie Gein just did not stand a chance <laughs> I mean no he, this guy has absolutely nothing going for him I mean, it's like every time a new detail comes through, you're like, really? He had to have a growth on his eye? Yeah. <laughs> like, were we not already like, didn't we have enough for kids to pick on him? That's what I'm saying. Yeah. It's just so obviously the kids picked on this eyelid drooping thing. Uh, one time someone said to him like, hey, it's saggy baggy eye. Like that was literally, <laughs> that was literally the joke. And he immediately burst into tears in front of the whole class. Oh, that just makes it worse. That makes it a thousand times worse. So yeah, all of this just confirmed to him that his mother was white. Only she loved him and only she could protect him. The outside world was just fucking evil. But things on the farm were equally bad as the farm sort of ran into the ground financially uh, because George was lazy as a dog, as we mentioned. And uh, his the book says his only job was drinking, loafing around and abusing his wife and kids. Yes, he was beating his kids as well now. Now, Augusta pretty much, you know, she was made of this sturdy German stock, but only she, she can only do so much. Like she can't take care of a farm and do all the domestic shit as well. George became an even bigger abusive asshole throughout this. His mental state was so bad. He even accused Augusta once of having an affair. I oh, mean, that's please. an insane <laughs> accusation. I'm imagining the whole family had a good laugh, <laughs> but probably not. <laughs> like, that's like one of those things where like you're in this vicious fight and then someone says something like that and everyone's like, let's take a second to all appreciate <laughs> that that was funny. <laughs> now we can get back to the abusive part. Now, Augusta considered her shitty relationship God's plan for her. Who was she to go against his will that she have a life of nonstop labor and a piece of shit husband? <laughs> This is where I often draw the line with religion when <laughs> these things are like part of your destiny to like put up with this shithole like situation. Um, now the boys are both out of school. They're working on the farm. 
their life, this life with their parents is all they knew. Like they had no outside life. They're just fucking in this house with their insane parents nonstop. Uh, Ed starts digging deeper and deeper into his interior life. He's reading a lot of adventure magazines. That's like his thing. Uh, The boys were now men and Augusta went into overdrive talking to them about the wickedness of women. She made them promise they would remain untainted by women. And she even told them if their lust got too strong, she preferred them to partake in the sin of Onan rather than a woman, which means jerk off and put your seat out onto the ground. There's a name for that? The sin of what? Onan. You don't know this? No. Oh my God. In the Bible, there's a guy (laughs) named Onan... Please don't correct me on this because I do not care. Basically, the gist is he gets in trouble from God for jerking off on the ground. And you're not supposed... I mean, it's, it's say, they say it more like delicately in the Bible. <laughs> do, they, do they say seed? Yes. So he spills his seed on the ground and that's a sin. So that's basically jerking off is a sin because you're just letting your seed out into the world and not into a woman. Why is the Bible so horny? Dude, the Bible is written by a bunch of guys who don't want anyone to fuck. That's basically... <laughs> So I'm, I'm sorry. surprised because I, I have I have never heard of this before. That's my favorite Bible story. <laughs> <laughs> so she's basically telling her sons, jerk off if you must. I'd rather have you do that than fuck a woman. Like she does not want her her sons fucking a woman. Ever. No. So she tells her sons to jerk off. That's gotta be a great conversation to have with your mom. <laughs> Especially Augusta. Yeah. Uh, a very special episode. <laughs> Of the games. <laughs> the games. By 1937, George is just a shell of a man at this point. His hard drinking has caught up with him. And he is so ill at this point. He basically relies on his family f- for round-the-clock care. Like, imagine taking care of someone you hate like that. It's got to be really difficult. He dies three years later in 1940 at the age of 66 from heart failure brought on by alcoholism. The family is actually kind of happy that the burden of taking care of him is over, but farm life was still not going well, and the family worked day and night just to eke out a living. The house was really dilapidated by now, um, and they it was unchanged from when they bought it in 1914, meaning no indoor plumbing and no electricity. They were still doing like oil lamps and shitting in an outhouse. Imagine a gust. <laughs> <laughs> like... I just like, it's got to be bad. Now, the brothers start taking odd jobs in Plainfield to make more income. Ed works as a handyman and, uh, wait for it, babysitter. Hell yeah. (laughs) Now, kids actually love Ed Gein. Uh, He does... How? (laughs) Honestly, it would be so crazy to find out like your childhood babysitter... Imagine? ...made a suit out of a woman. Ugh. You got to feel bad as a parent if you hired him after the fact. (laughs) Whoops, we should have done a little more checking. Did you ever have a babysitter that did anything that was super sus? The only thing I can think of is one of my babysitters um, fucked my stepdad's brother. (laughs) Wait, wait. Stepdad's brother. Yes. Okay. But that was like a big scandal. In your family? Yeah, because she's like 17 or 18 and he was like 38 or something. Gross. Whatever. Uh, and I was kind of mad because I had a crush on him. Wait, wait, wait. Because he was like the cool uncle. <laughs> does he? 
Desi. And not a real crush, like a kid crush, like the cool uncle's coming. And like then that your stupid of, babysitter. Yeah, I was like, fuck her. Uh, yeah, because she, she, I remember she had a crush on him because she's like, he looks just like Roman from Days of Our Lives, which was like the this big... story is getting <laughs> so sad. The more it goes on, this story just keeps getting worse. Hey, how do you think I feel? Because as an adult now, I'm like, that cool uncle was a loser. <laughs> Where is he today? I have no idea because my mom left that guy eventually. <laughs> Sorry. I have too many details in my life. <laughs> Now, as I mentioned, the kids loved Ed. He did magic tricks for them. He like roughhoused with the boys. They had snowball fights, all of that stuff. Ed does talk about how he related to children much more, much easier than he did with adults. Uh, so that kind of makes sense. Now, Ed was considered odd, but he was soft spoken, and the townspeople were like, he's harmless despite his weird behavior. Henry was far more outgoing, and he actually took work like you know, working on railroads and working as a contractor where he oversaw crews. So he was much more out there in the world than Ed was. This is really a testament to uh, nature versus nurture. Yeah. In terms of killers. Kind of. Yeah. Uh, So not that that's always the case. No, but but I'm just saying this is a, this is an interesting, this is an interesting thing that his brother had well, this relatively normal life compared to Ed well, Gein. I, I mean, it's still pretty odd because he did live with his parents until he was in his 40s. Oh, wow. I mean, Henry, Henry the did. older brother. Like, both of them lived in that house with the mom. Well, I'm going to get more into Henry's story right now. So the brothers did get along, but they obviously fought occasionally. And the biggest thing that they would fight about was Ed's closeness to Augusta that Henry thought was a little over the top. Oh, no. So Henry did sort of worry about that relationship being too extreme. Ed was shocked when he initially found out that his brother didn't feel the same way about mother as he did. And it really planted a seed of resentment in him because he was so protective of his mother. He was fucking offended that Henry didn't feel the same way as this fucking angel on earth. Now, making things even worse, Henry had fallen in love with a divorced mother of two and was planning on moving in with her. That was never to be. On Tuesday, May 16th, 1944, Henry Gain died um, at the age of 44. And let's just say there's a lot of mystery surrounding his death. Now, on that day, Henry and Ed were fighting, fighting a fire somewhere on their property. Some say it happened accidentally. Some say it was intentionally lit to clear some brush. Ed would later say it was Henry's idea to start it, but the details from Ed were always very inconsistent. Now, regardless of how it started, at some point, a strong gust of wind blew and the fire got out of control. Ed claimed that he escaped the flames by retreating into into a nearby marsh before eventually extinguishing the fire himself. He went to look for his brother, but it was dark and he couldn't find him, so he went and got a search party together that included the town sheriff. When the group returned to the location where the fire was, Ed led them exactly to where Henry's body lay. Oh. Now... That's pretty unusual considering he couldn't find him before he left. The body was untouched by flame, but was lying on completely scorched earth. There were no burns on Henry's skin. His clothes were covered in soot, but also had no signs of singeing or um, being burned at all. He also had some odd bruises on his head. Now, they actually mentioned to Ed that it was weird he couldn't find Henry, but then immediately led them right to the body when they returned. And Ed responded, funny how that works. 
The coroner was called to the scene and the cause of death was determined to be asphyxiation. No charges were filed. Now, this is something that's brought up a lot when he's interrogated later on in life. Uh, No one thought it was murder at the time because people just didn't think of uh, Ed that way. But obviously, after the fact, people are going back and going, oh, wait a minute, what the fuck happened here? Now, a lot of people started suspecting that Gain did kill his brother. It was brought up in questioning numerous times. And um, George W. Arndt, who studied the case extensively, wrote that in retrospect, it was possible and likely that Henry's death was the Cain and Abel aspect of this case. So, I mean, I think he did it. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, that, that that evidence is true, that there wasn't any singeing on him. It doesn't sound like it was... Also, right after this fight they had and he was going to move in with this woman, like... Sounds a little suspicious. Yeah. So the silver uh, silver lining for Ed, he finally had his mother all to himself. So, I mean, Henry was living there till 44. Like, That's very old for 1940s. What yeah. year is this now? The, is it the 50s uh, yet? I think it's like, yeah. Look, it's... That's, that's, I just feel like people aren't, people weren't living with their parents. No, that was unusual even that during that time. That's like, what I'm yeah, saying, back yeah. then. Now... Unfortunately, the years of stress from all that hard work, acting superior and no coming, caught up with Augusta. After Henry died, she began to suffer some ill health and often felt faint. At some point, Ed drives her to the hospital because she feels very sick. And after a long examination, it was determined that Augusta had had a stroke. He stayed by her side every day for as many hours as was allowed. He finally took her home and he literally carried her like across the threshold (laughs) into her bed. And he took in his helpless mother and literally like took care of her every fucking thing she needed. It was awful for him to see her like this, but at the same time, he felt exhilarated by the idea that she was now completely in his care. He began to fantasize about her embracing him when she was finally well and thanking him and like squishing him in her bosom and just being so grateful that he helped take care of her uh, with like she he like wanted to be like flooded with love and gratitude from his mother, like while being snuggled in her bosom, basically. Obviously, that did not happen because Augusta. (laughs) Is not that type of mother, but that was his fantasy while he was doing all of this, which is really fucking sad. He was her perfect boy, though, taking care of her. Um, he read Bible verses to her every night. By nineteen, by mid nineteen forty five, she was finally feeling strong enough to start walking on her own. In typical fashion, though, she would push Ed away anytime he tried to help her. Now. In the winter of 1945, Augusta demanded that Ed take her to purchase some straw for the farm. Of course, she didn't trust Ed to handle the transaction on her own. She had to be the one there to do it. She basically had him set it up and then took her to um, this guy named Smith's farm. When they arrived to make the purchase, the man they were buying it from was beating a dog with a stick. Now, they're watching this happen. At some point, his living girlfriend comes out on the front porch and is yelling at him to stop. The dog eventually dies, and the girlfriend's literally like shrieking and crying on the front porch. This disgusted Augusta, the living in sin, not the dog being beaten. She she was fucking livid that he was living in sin with this woman. Like she was shocked when the woman came out on the porch. Like the dog meant nothing to her. She like could not get over the fact that he was living in sin. Like it consumed her for days after this incident happened. 
And that consumption probably led to her second stroke because she was so fucking worked up about it. Ed rushes her to the hospital again, but on December 29th, 1945, she died at the age of 67. Now, as you can imagine, at her funeral, Ed was full on snot crying and like in grief, out of control grief that no one had ever, like the likes of which no one had ever seen before. The book says he lost his only friend and his one true love. So after this obviously fucking life-changing situation for Ed, the townspeople are looking out for him and they all think he seemed pretty much like the Ed they always knew. Um, He's still going into town. There's some there were a few changes, um, but mostly this, the Ed was still like this good neighbor who was always willing to help out. And that, you know, this weird guy who was like, whatever, nice. Now he did become more unkempt after Augusta died. He stopped shaving basically and stopped bathing and townsfolk complained that he stank. Like they're like, Ooh, Ed. (laughs) I mean, you look at his, that famous photo of him. You just know he stinks. Where he has like the, um, the flannel. Stubble, yeah, well, the, flannel the flannel and the hat. Oh, uh, yeah, you just he just looks like a smelly guy. Also, wearing flannel and not showering, it's that's, so that's like the worst combination. Because just <laughs> and that flannel back then was like thick. Yeah, because it's like wool, like yeah. it's lit, like itchy wool. And flannel. they didn't have a washer dryer. Uh, no, and you know Ed wasn't fucking washing anything. Now he at the house, things are fucking revolting. So he's just living there by himself now. Yes. Now he's in the house by himself. He completely closes off the second floor and all of Augusta's room and leaves them in pristine museum quality uh, condition. No one's allowed up there. He doesn't even go up there. He makes the dining room off of the kitchen, his bedroom basically. And that's the only two rooms that he uses in this house. So he's not even using his old bedroom. No, he's like in the dining room now. He set up his bedroom there. He's like closed off the whole second floor basically. I mean, Um, it's not like he's having company over. (laughs) No, but... And he lives like he's not having company over. Like, Rachel, this they had a chapter where they're describing the condition of his house. And it is just fucking filthy. Like, he doesn't throw anything out. He doesn't wash dishes. He uses gross, unwashed dishes. He throws things on the floor, like garbage just I mean, on the floor. I mean, there's just pizza boxes everywhere. Absolutely. <laughs> just moldy pizza boxes under the bed. It's the worst. Now, uh, he sort of supports himself by leasing out a few acres of land, like he leases some of that to another farmer and he continues doing odd jobs. He does work during threshing season every year. And I looked that up. That's where you chop the wheat. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know what that was. I knew that. I mean, I kind of knew it, but I had to double check because I was like, Rachel's going to ask me what threshing is. No, I actually <laughs> I actually knew what that was. Oh, good. Um, so that's where he kind of gets a lot of his socializing because these people are working in these huge groups of men. And then at the end of every shift, they go back to one of the guy's you know, houses and the wife has prepared this huge dinner for them all, like from working all day. Obviously, Ed's not part of that. But he definitely becomes the butt of jokes and pranks with these guys. They're definitely picking on Ed, um, just doing like various pranks. And the wife feels sorry for him, even though he does a super creepy thing. He always waits until every guy gets their food to go last. And then when the guys go outside to drink and smoke, he sits there and stares at the women and daughters in like a creepy way that they all comment on, on this. But they kind of feel so bad for him. They don't even 
care really. He's not threatening to them. He's so pathetic. Yeah. And they even bring him like cookies and stuff. Like they definitely feel bad for him. He's a very strong man physically because he's just done intense labor his whole life, but he still has that, um, the men see him as weak because he still cries a lot and they're, you know, in front of them basically. So it's around this time he really becomes obsessed with true crime magazines. People, um, tell stories about him, like loving to tell them the stories that he's read in these magazines, like including things like lust killings. Murder was his number one topic of conversation. He sometimes would um, also comment on women around men. It's like a very 40-year-old virgin kind of way, saying things about like, wow, Bernice Warden is getting nice and plump. (laughs) Just like weird things that aren't quite what a man would say about a woman he's attracted to necessarily. Uh, can you imagine him just talking to you about murder? Well, he sounds like if he was around today, he would totally be like a podcast stan. Yeah, absolutely. He'd like, be like the one fan who like emails a little too much. <laughs> <laughs> Not that we have that. Well, but he also has, there's like that meme that's been done to death where it's like, oh, I'm the one at the party talking about serial killers. Right. That's like Ed I'm Gein. such a weirdo. But Ed Gein really was a weirdo. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when he, he was doing it, it was not normal. Honey, you're not weird. You just like a genre that a lot of women like. Exactly. Ed Gein was weird. When he was doing it, it was creepy. Like people didn't like it. Do you know what I mean? Like for sure. So he began to retreat more and more though. Uh, there was only one reason he went into town and that was to pay a visit to Mary Hogan's tavern. Now, this wasn't an unusual tavern. It looked more like a warehouse, and it had like a black spear sign on top. That was the the bar. He wasn't a hardcore drinker like his dad, but he liked the occasional beer. But what he really wanted to drink in was Mary Hogan. He was obsessed with her. Now, Mary Hogan was a middle-aged woman, about 200 pounds with a heavy German accent, and Ed saw his mother in her. <laughs> so that was his main point of attraction. Unlike his mom, though, who was pure as the driven snow, so, so, <laughs> snow, <laughs> Mary was foul-mouthed, twice divorced, and rumored to not only have connections to the mob, but also rumored to be a big city madam at one time in her life. So she was Augustus' evil twin, and Ed could not wrap his mind around the fact that that the good one was dead, and here Mary was just fucking living life, the evil fucking twin of Augusta. So a typical day for Ed would be he literally would cook beans, like pork and beans, in a can. Like he would open the can and stick it on the burner, like like in old-fashioned cartoons where the lid is just popped up and you eat it directly from the can. It's like a classic hobo meal. Absolutely. So he that's what he did. He literally almost lived exclusively off pork and beans. This guy. <laughs> this guy's whole house smells like farts. And he would throw the bean can on the ground when he finished eating. Like he didn't even put it in the garbage. So his floor is littered with pork and bean cans. Uh, He also had a gum can where he would put his chewed gum from the day into it at the end of the day. And never get rid of it. No. So it was just a huge coffee can or whatever full of fucking chewed gum. Just an absolutely disgusting house. Now, this period we're talking about now is several (gasps) years. Wouldn't it be great? I always talk about crossovers with my favorite uh, reality shows. 
on my 90 day podcast, but I would love to see TLC do a crossover of Ed Gein and Hoarders. Ooh. I'm this guy. He's like a hoarder, but it's more, I'm not throwing out my garbage than I'm collecting things. Do you know what I mean? Like, but, but that's a lot of horrors. Their yeah. house is just filled with garbage. But they're also bringing in a ton of shit too. Sometimes I think they could make an exception yeah. for Eddie. No, he's, I mean he's definitely I, something. I think he's a hoarder. Well, he gets more hoarding in next episode. <laughs> but they, not they, very unusual things, right? But they could also do a crossover of smothered. Yes, I mean he's living in absolute fucking squalor, and that's what most hoarders' houses end up looking. However, they get there for sure. Like he probably has dead animals. In there of somewhere, a dead, dead animal. There's no even, way he doesn't even know about. Absolutely, them. they're under a fucking pork and bean can. Some squirrel <laughs> or like rodent that he stepped on. Now, so his day would be cook his beans, take his beans, and put them on his fucking stomach and lie in bed and eat beans Ugh. while he read his uh, true crime and adventure magazines. Now, during this period, several years after Augusta died, his his obsession at that point. In true crime magazines, was studying Nazi atrocities and reading up on those. Now, one thing he liked to read was called Men's Action Magazine. One of the covers they found in his house was a big-titted blonde Gestapo woman hitting a concentration camp prisoner with a riding crop. So, real fucking sick shit. He was obsessed with the but um, sorry with the bitch of Buchenwald, Ilsa Koch. I am assuming that's how it's said. I don't really care. Fuck her. Uh, who committed awful, inhumane acts. Um, I'm only going to mention them now because they're relevant to what Ed Gein does. She is probably most infamous for using human body parts of her victims to create things like book binding and lampshades. She also collected skulls and teeth of her victims. He also liked reading about Irma Grease, an angelic-looking young blonde who was responsible for picking out which women and children would be sent to the death chambers. Now, he was also into cannibalism and headhunter sort of stories. These kind of, they were called like South Sea Adventure uh, magazines. Of course, Ed's favorite was detailed descriptions of shrinking a head and making a drum out of a victim's skin. He also liked ones where rich people would crash their yachts onto a shore of a, a cannibal island and would be tortured and eaten. That sounds like a good one. I'm just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> Uh, his taste also included um, stories about body snatchers and grave robbers. He liked that. One of his favorite stories was about young a group of young men who dug up women's bodies and did unspeakable things to them. This is so such incredible foreshadowing. Yeah. Ed was also fascinated by real stories, including one uh, that he saw in a newspaper about a GI who went to Denmark to have a sex reassignment surgery. Now, Ed had long fantasized about being a woman since he basically since he was a child. And this probably has a lot to do with his mom wanting him to have been a girl. Now, this story sent him into a fantasy about no longer having a penis, but having a vagina. Uh, and so that was, he had just seen what a vagina was in um, like a, an anatomy book that he bought. It was like the f- first vagina he saw was a detailed medical picture. So he was fascinated with what that would be like. He also scoured regular newspapers for disturbing, gruesome stories and clipped those out. And he also liked to clip out obituaries. Anyway, as you said, there's a lot of foreshadowing in his interest with these magazines. Um, So Ed was incredibly lonely at this point. He was 
missing his mom intensely. He describes this period of feeling like he was living in a dream, nothing seemed real, and he started having odd experiences. He believed that sometimes through sheer will, will, willpower, he could raise his mom from the grave. He would also hear her voice telling him to be good, and he would have like weird experiences when he would walk the property. Sometimes he would feel like a chill go through his body and then he would turn around and see a buzzard staring at him. Other times, um, one, another time he went on a walk and he saw a pile of leaves and when he looked into the pile, he saw human faces peeking out th- like through the leaves up at him uh, in this pile, which sounds really creepy. He would also find himself in intense states of longing for her. Like he would just be so fucking... And just like over the top, like wanting his mother back. When he would get into these states, he would bolt to the tavern to stare at Mary Hogan. Ugh, can you imagine this fucking creepo coming in? Gotta suck to be Mary Hogan at this She's point. She's just fucking trying to run her bar and probably was nice to him. <laughs> like, Once. Yeah. So that was something he did for the last time in December of 1954. Well, at least while she was alive. <gasps> On the afternoon of December 8th, 1954, a man walked into Mary's tavern, almost immediately sensing something was wrong since it was so quiet and empty. He walked in a bit further and he noticed a massive pool of blood on the floor. He immediately went to get help and investigators came and obviously suspected foul play from the start because, well, there was bullet shells uh, near a huge pool of blood for one. Uh, They also found that the blood smear sort of went all the way towards the door as if someone had dragged the body out the door. It went a little bit into the parking lot and they, I guess they made this guess that someone had picked the body up and put it into a pickup truck. Now, no leads ever came in about what happened to Mary and the case basically went cold. According to everyone at the time, Mary had disappeared. Like no one knew what fucking happened to her and um, not they had zero leads. So, Later, a man would recall at the time joking with Ed that he should have courted Mary harder and she would be with him instead of missing. Ed responded that she wasn't missing. She was at his house right now. Now, Uh, this guy uh, just laughed it off. (laughs) Like he was like, oh, Ed, and his weird, dark jokes. (laughs) Now, this was a common thing that Ed would say anytime Mary Hogan's disappearance was brought up. He would just constantly like make this joke that she's at his house. Like, and people were just laughing it off. Now, like, as I mentioned, most people were like, ah, that's just his ghoulish sense of humor. Uh, Yeah. So now around the same time, um, rumors start popping up about Ed Gein outside of the Mary thing. Local children started claiming that they had seen shrunken heads in his house. Some kids had even gone in to play cards and noticed that there was three heads hanging over a doorway. And then Ed would not invite them back after they got caught telling this rumor. So it kind of became the haunted house in the right. neighborhood. Like kids would, when they were walking home from school or wherever, when they got to his like property line, they would run the distance of his house until they got past it and then start walking again. It was just like the local ghoulish Halloween house. And all the adults pretty much laughed it off like, ah, it's just, this is nothing. The kids were certain that something was going on there. Little did the parents know and the adults in town know that the house of horrors was real and shit was going down at Ed Gein's place <laughs> that we'll get into next week. Oh. <laughs> Wow. 
I'm so glad you decided to take this on this month. Yeah. I mean, I like I told Desi when she decided to do Ed Gein, I was like, oh, I, I, I love talking about Ed Gein. I think the thing that's interesting about him is he's put in this category of serial killers, and he really isn't a serial he's, killer. He's not a serial killer. But I think people just assume that. I mean, he killed people, but like, yeah, I mean, his crimes are way weirder in a way. Like, well, or it's I, it's different. Like, it's I just very different. I think he pigeonholed into serial killer, you know, uh, maybe for people who don't either know his whole story, but also because, as we mentioned at the top of the show, that he has inspired so many fictional right. killers. Yeah. Well, in Psycho, he kills a lot of people. Like, yes. he definitely is more of a serial serial killer. Uh, yeah, that's true. That's true. I didn't think about that. But yeah, I mean, he he has his own thing going. That's pretty unmatched, in my opinion. Like it's it's out there. Uh. Yeah, I, he's, he's got a lot. He's got a whole he's got a whole a, thing happening in that house. Isn't it weird to hear his whole story where everything just lines up like this perfect storm of creating someone like Ed Gein? Like I said before, this kid never stood a chance. I mean, he really did have. I mean, it's like yes, he was probably predestined to be fucked up in some way, like yeah. just by nature, but yeah. also so much of his upbringing was so fucked. His upbringing did not give him a chance no. to, to go away from nature. <laughs> like definitely people can be born into situations that they escape out of or whatever, but he literally had no chance. I think the fucking mom is just, <sighs> I mean, you, it's funny to realize how accurate psycho is in a way. <laughs> With that relationship? <laughs> like, oh, well, yeah. They totally got the whole idea of Norman Bates and his relationship with his mom from this. Yeah. And that it must have been... Yeah. I, mean, I think in the book, they talk about people calling him a mama's boy. And it's like, he is the mother of mama's boys. Like, there's no one more mama boy than Ed Gein. That's like, what I'm saying, yeah. is he needs to be on that show, Smothered. Oh, what's Smothered? It's on TLC. It's like a pretty new show. It's like about like mama's girls and boys oh i don't know about that one we should get into <laughs> smothered i for some reason i just assumed it was some killer show like these women got smothered <laughs> like some like they get so specific no, now it's like little s big m like smother oh. like your like your mother is smothering you got it and it's like people dating people with oh. a, with with insane relationships with their, their moms. moms okay yeah, that sounds interesting to me. I'm into that. Uh, look, there are a lot of TLC shows that they could do a crossover with Ed Gein. I, I, I bet they could do a say yes for the to the dress, <laughs> or like one of the weird uh, food ones. Where, oh, like freak- the woman who only eats cheesy potatoes. <laughs> he only eats pork and beans. Ed Gein, freaky eaters. Yeah, that works. Also. Uh, they could probably do like a Dr. Pimple Popper, get rid of that thing on his eye. I'm disgusted by that. Why did you say that? (laughs) That is the one show I won't watch. I do not care. And I get revolted when I even see a snippet of something, like if someone tweets a gif or whatever. Those aren't even regular pimples on that show. I don't know why anyone watches that. Like 
that's where I draw the line. Like I can almost sit through anything, but that sends me over the edge. Like I just can't watch it. The other show that's in the same vein as Dr. Pimple Popper on TLC is called My Feet Are Killing Me. Oh my God. And it's basically people with really bad foot problems. Oh my God. And it's just like, no one asked for this. I I need to know who is watching that show. This is like definitely people running out of ideas. (laughs) Like, what else can we do? Like, where where do we draw the line as a society (laughs) on these shows? Like, it's so, ugh. The feet one sounds awful, but nothing will top the pimple popper one. You think the feet one, you think the feet one sounds better than the pimple one, but I think the feet one's worse. Like, I had to turn it off after, like, seeing, like, 10 seconds of it. I mean, there's probably more variety, too. Well, and they show the surgeries. That's what gets me about it. Oh, yeah. I don't want to see that. I can handle certain surgical procedures on shows. Like, I can handle the surgical procedures on my 600-pound life. Right. But there's something that just feel, I don't know. There, Yeah, I probably wouldn't like it because even on my 600-pound life when they have some kind of skin problems or what was that guy? James K. Yeah, his like leg had some issues. His legs? Yeah. Yeah. And that would That was me. pretty bad. That was pretty bad. His legs were pretty bad. So I probably would not like the foot one. Uh, the foot but I haven't seen disgusting. it, and I hope I'm, I never see I'm it. I'm just genuinely curious. Like, are there like there has to be someone out there who's like, oh my god, I love my feet are killing me. I watch it every week. I mean, it's on the air, yeah. Right, so someone's watching it. Someone's watching it. Oh, maybe there won't be a season two. <laughs> they might even already been, be on season. Two. I mean, I think there's something like weird about these shows because it's like people need help, so they're willing to get help. Because they'll like they're they're paying the price of putting their humiliating feet on the air, and to get like a free surgery, it's right? Such, it's such a an American thing where people are willing to humiliate themselves on television because the medical care is free. Yeah, no, it's 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 a dubious morality. <laughs> There's something right. like I'm like happy they're getting help, but should we be watching it? Right. I don't know. I yeah, it's too much. I don't know. Uh, yeah, TLC. I would just. I. Sh- I should just run through their uh, lineup at some point. <laughs> Look, I like. I, I've said this before. Like one of my favorite networks. They have some bangers. They have some absolute fucking Cause, bangers. Because they go there. They, <laughs> I mean, they do things no one else will do, good or bad. Were they toddlers and tiaras? Oh yeah, they yeah, were. That's Taylor, yeah. Okay. They no, have, everyone who was complaining about cuties a few weeks ago, I was like, you guys were all fine when Toddlers and Tiaras was on, and that was fucking equally as bad, but with real Actually, kids. that was like a whole other thing. Yeah. It wasn't cuties like... I didn't see cuties, so I don't want to like comment on it, but I know enough about it to know that it was basically set in this like dance world for kids who were dancing sexually. But that's like dance moms... And toddlers and tiaras, they were always like flirting and doing sort of overtly sexual moves as part of the performance. Like, yeah. You watched Dance Moms, didn't you? Yes. I watched at least, I watched like the first few seasons. But we all really watched it for Abby Lee Miller. Yeah. I, she's, she's a wild person. She's insane. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. What is the clip of her in the wheelchair? Dude, she's in a scooter. That's right, she's, a scooter. She like she's in a scooter and she's like I was attacked and <laughs> she's like I was in an attack. She was like 
She's, <laughs> it's okay. honestly one of the she's, funniest things ever. She's in the confessional saying how she was attacked, and then it shows the flashback of somebody in the scooter <laughs> just getting slightly too close to her, and then she goes, back up, back up, and then she revert, hits reverse <laughs> on the scooter, and it's like no one even touched her. Look, there's honestly... Nothing funnier to me than someone I rate on a scooter. Oh my god, <laughs> it's such a great combination. It's high to see. comedy. <laughs> that yeah, she's a wild woman. I don't know what's up with her. Didn't she go to jail? I think she went to jail briefly for we, like tax evasion or something. We should do an episode on her. Yeah, because that's a uh, remember what was it? Candy apples her co- her competition. Did you watch those se- seasons? She no. had like a rivalry with another dance. That world is just wild to me. Like I can't, I don't get it at all. It seems like a lot of work, <laughs> and watched, everyone takes it so seriously. I watched the season like one of the earlier seasons of it. I think it I watched the on. first two, Same. possibly three seasons, and I wasn't like like had must see TV. It was one of those shows where if it was on, I would sit down and watch it. Yeah, definitely. I don't, I don't, I'm not like a Stan. I don't know all the ins and outs. I yeah. didn't follow the social media. I just media. know that Abby Lee Miller is iconic. <laughs> she's, she's iconic in a way that's bad. In probably. that she's an insane person. She's one of a kind. Yeah. I mean, some of those routines were like Abby would have done an Ed Gein routine. Of course. <laughs> Didn't they do like a 9-11? That sounds vaguely... Was that Dance Moms? (laughs) Sometimes I'm like, was that Dance Moms or was that like a sketch like on some show? I feel like... She did really inappropriate themes for their dances. Right. I I don't remember all of them off the top of my head, but maybe we'll discuss them in a bonus or something. That's a good idea. All the most (laughs) absurd uh, Dance Mom dance themes okay yeah that sounds fun all right i'll look into that for a bonus cool. all right so guys. back next week for part two yep and then we'll see you guys on friday bye, bye.